This time on my podcast, Audibly Speaking, The Backyard Photograph. Hi, I'm Rick Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, audibly speaking. Puzzle Piece 1 The Backyard Photographs. Hello, I'm Rick Ryman, an historian. In this series, which I call Puzzle Pieces, I examine a different controversy in American history and try to show how it is solved by historians, as opposed to, say, lawyers, for example. I hope you will learn something about how historians do history, and also about each micro-controversy we discuss along the way. Our micro-controversy in this first episode of Puzzle Pieces has to do with the controversy involving the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I'm writing a book on the context of the assassination in its times, so I thought this would be a good place to start. I am sure that I will touch on this controversy in the course of my book, but the book is about so much more that I am certainly not giving away anything new here, at least not new to historians. So, what is the controversy? Well, here are the essentials. First, Lee Harvey Oswald always denied killing President Kennedy during the 48 hours he was in police custody before his own death. Second, no one could positively identify him, and he alone, as being in the sixth-floor window where the shots were fired that killed the president. Third, a rifle traced to Oswald was found on the sixth floor and three bullet shells were found on the floor adjacent to that six-floor window. They were confirmed as coming from Oswald's rifle. Fourth, the bullet and bullet fragments found in the president's car and on one of the stretchers was traced to Oswald's rifle to the exclusion of all others. Fifth, on November 22nd, a photograph of Oswald wearing a holstered pistol and carrying the murder rifle was found with Oswald's possessions in the garage of the home where his wife was staying. Sixth, when Oswald was shown this photograph on Saturday, November 23rd, he said that someone had superimposed his face on the body of someone else. In other words, he maintained that the photo was faked. What do lawyers do with this evidence, and what do historians do? Well, typically, lawyers cherry-pick the evidence that supports their case, and they try to explain away that evidence which does not. Historians are usually more neutral. They are professionally obligated to weigh the evidence on both sides and then pronounce a judgment. The listener should understand, however, that although the Warren Commission investigation, the ones who actually did the legwork and investigating, were staff members who were all lawyers from Ivy League institutions or the equivalent. They conducted themselves as historians, however, 
in their work on this case. In other words, they were supposed to uncover the facts, all the facts concerning the assassination. They were not putting Oswald on trial. They were not prosecuting attorneys. Since Oswald was dead, he could not get a trial. The Warren Commission was a fact-finding body. Here were the questions that they had to ask and had to answer. First, given the enormous amount of evidence linking Oswald to the crime, the Commission asked what further evidence against Oswald might they find in his movements and in his life. It would have been professional misconduct to ignore the possibility that Oswald did it because so much evidence pointed to him by the time the commission was formed. Second, was there evidence of a conspiracy with or without Oswald? Third, how did the assassination unfold? In other words, how many shots were fired? How fast were they fired? Could all the wounds in the two men who were hit be traced to one gunman, or must there be two or more? Fourth, was there any conclusive evidence of another gunman elsewhere, especially firing in front of the presidential vehicle? Fifth, did Oswald know Officer Tippett, who he was accused of killing 45 minutes after JFK was shot? Sixth, did Oswald know Jack Ruby, who shot Oswald on November 24th? Seven, was Oswald an agent of either the FBI or the CIA? And eight, what were the assassin's motives or the assassin's motives? There were other questions explored, such as the holes in presidential security, how many holes there were for presidential security, and who was responsible for them. But these eight questions were the main questions about the assassination involving Oswald either directly or indirectly. We will leave to a future podcast the answers that the Warren Commission gave to these questions. First, though, let me point out a central fact that is too often forgotten when people look at the JFK assassination. The fact is that people apply a much higher standard of proof to the JFK assassination than they do to any jury trial in their experience. This is totally illogical if you think about it. People are hung, electrocuted, and sentenced for life on the standard of evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. This standard is far from certainty. And yet people don't bat an eye when any defendant is sentenced to death or life in prison on the strength of evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. But for no good reason at all, the standard of proof in the JFK case seems to be the totally unrealistic one of absolute certainty, beyond all doubt. And anything less is said to open the door to the honoring of so-called evidence, which is actually not evidence at all, but the will-of-the-wisp of what-ifs. For example, any evidence that nails Oswald to the wall is explained or dismissed not with evidence, but with a what-if. 
What if the rifle and the shells were planted? What if Oswald's fingerprints on the rifle were planted? What if the so-called pristine whole bullet found at Parkland Hospital was planted? So what if there is no evidence for any of these claims? What ifs trump real evidence every time, but only in the JFK case, where the rules and the goalposts for criminal justice are changed for absolutely no reason? And oh, by the way, the so-called pristine bullet was not in any way pristine. It was greatly deformed at its base, and its whole form was explained as a result of velocity deceleration and a path through two bodies that largely missed hitting bone. But in this podcast episode, we now come to the backyard photographs taken by Marina Oswald on March 31, 1963, 60 years ago today. Yes, you heard that right. Marina Oswald, Oswald's wife, admitted and still admits that she took the pictures of Oswald in the backyard holding the murder rifle and the pistol that killed Officer Tippett. Oswald had just received in the mail his orders of a rifle and a pistol. They arrived days earlier, even though he had ordered them through the mail at different times. Oswald dressed himself in black and told Marina to snap him holding both weapons and two radical publications to which Oswald subscribed, The Worker and The Militant. Marina, at the time, thought his request was ridiculous but he insisted, so she took the pictures in the backyard, their apartment in Oak Cliff. So much for the photo being fake. Oswald was working at a photography firm at the time and developed the negatives himself. Not only were two different pictures found at the Ruth Payne home, but one of the negatives was still there as well. It was traced to Oswald's Imperial Reflex camera, which was also in the garage. The nail in the coffin of the what-if-the-photos-were-faked counter to this damning evidence is that there is another layer of proof that the photos were genuine and not faked. In April 1963, Oswald mailed a copy of one of the photos to his friend George de Morenschilt. De Morenschilt had left Dallas before the photo was mailed and had gone to work in Haiti. So the photographs were left in boxes until DeMorenschilt returned to the United States and went through the boxes much later in 1967. There were two signed salutations found on the photo on the back. One was almost certainly by Marina, who wrote, Hunter of Fascists, ha ha ha. And the other was Oswald himself, who signed his name under the salutation to my friend George and dated it April 5, 1963. Handwriting experts confirmed it was Oswald's handwriting. It would be hard to imagine better proof of authenticity than all this. But still, people continued to peer at the backyard photos and claim that the shadows were conflicting and that Oswald's posture was unnatural. These claims were later disproven, which is not surprising since there were never any good reasons claimed for these assertions in the first place. 
The backyard photos are a good example of a possible mystery when the photos were first discovered. After all, without verification, which takes time, how could anyone know for sure that Oswald was lying? Many so-called mysteries of the assassination have been shown, with and in the fullness of time, to be no mysteries at all. So questions about the assassination owed much of their power, at least at first, to their freshness and the fact that it took time to test them. In a word, people were too quick to jump to conclusions. It is true that Oswald lied about almost everything when under interrogation, so it is hardly surprising he lied about the backyard photographs, which tied him to both murders he was accused of. He lied about where he was when the shots were fired. We know he lied because he gave two different answers in the course of his interrogation. First, he said he was having lunch on the second floor with Junior Jarman, who denied it. Then, on the very morning that Oswald was killed, he said he had come down to the second floor when he heard the shots, placing him on the upper floors from which the shots were fired at President Kennedy. One person identified Oswald in a police lineup as the man who shot Officer Tippett. Four other individuals either saw Oswald running from the scene or saw him emptying his revolver of shells as he left the scene. But Oswald denied shooting Tippett or even being at the scene. The shots that killed Tippett were identified as being from Oswald's pistol, to the exclusion of all others. Oswald had clearly returned to his boarding house to retrieve his pistol for self-defense. But he told police that he was just carrying it for no reason except that young kids like to carry guns when they go out. And so on. As for the backyard photos, tests ranging from the practical and the logical to the scientific have continuously reconfirmed the circumstantial and physical evidence of their authenticity. In 1967, Lawrence Schiller went to the backyard of the apartment on Neely Street where the backyard photos were taken, and he took a photo of an Oswald stand-in, standing in Oswald's position on March 31, 1963. The test was taken on a similarly sunny day in late March of 1967. The photograph reproduced exactly the same narrow shadow under the nose and the same short slanted shadow of the lower half of the man's body, which was also seen in the photo of Oswald. Enhancements of the photo and negative revealed a gouge on the stock of the rifle in the picture that was identical to the gouge on the murder weapon. Critics said that the negative could have been doctored to add the gouge, another what-if of no evidentiary value from the fertile imaginations of critics who inhabit Dallas in Wonderland. Looking at how historians assess this evidence, they would look at the weight of the evidence and either totally ignore or discount any what-ifs. Look at it this way. Once a hypothesis has been confirmed by an amount of evidence that outweighs to a heavy degree evidence to the contrary, historians reach a conclusion called an interpretation. 
which purports to be a true story about what happened to the best of their ability to determine it. Historians, as social scientists, don't speak of proof, but of conclusions that are always inherently tentative. As social scientists, historians are always open to new evidence, always prepared to change their mind if the weight of new evidence coming in outweighs the weight of the old evidence. But before a new interpretation, reversing the old interpretation, can be established, the historian has to show that the new evidence is just as exculpatory of Oswald as the old evidence was incriminating or more. And the historian has to explain why the old evidence is flawed, because two diametrically opposed interpretations cannot both be true. Oswald cannot both be the man in the photo and not the man in the photo. To take one example, it would need to be established that Marina did not take the photograph of Oswald, as she always has said she did. Surely she would know if the man in the picture she took was her husband. Early in the investigation, while Oswald was still alive, she destroyed one of the pictures at Oswald's mother's request because she was trying to cover up evidence to protect Oswald. When the authorities found the other pictures, she confessed that she took the pictures. Critics have added the non-evidence of another what-if. What if authorities threatened Marina that they would deport her unless she confessed to something she didn't do, namely taking the pictures? But there is no evidence for this. And here again, we have the benefit of the passage of time to test this. Marina is still very much alive. For the last 30 years, she has reversed her original position that Oswald was guilty by insisting he was innocent. But one thing she has never reversed her position on is the authenticity of the backyard photographs. She took them, she still admits it, and they are genuine. So when we evaluate a what-if, such as the charge that the gouge on the rifle was due to an altered negative, historians ask the following. First, is there any evidence to support the claim? Here, the answer is no. Second, even if true, does this claim undermine Marina's claim that she took the photo? Does it disprove that the photo was taken by Oswald's camera? Did Marina put Oswald's face on another man's body in her backyard? Finally, what about other evidence of the authenticity of the backyard photograph? How do we disprove all of that? Or should we even try when a piece of non-evidence, a mere what-if, is tossed into the tray to counter the weight of all other real evidence? In a word, Historians are not impressed by the singularity of a what-if. In 2009 and 2010, Hani Farid, a professor of computer science at the University of California, Berkeley, conducted computer imaging studies on the figure in the backyard photograph. The purpose was to see if Oswald's posture was a natural one. Oswald was leaning to one side, which struck some people, not only as odd, but impossible. 
I have a YouTube video which goes over Professor Fareed's conclusions based on his articles of 2009 and 2010. These PDFs are publicly available and linked with my video, The Backyard Photographs Validated, on my YouTube site, which is called JFK Demystified. These sources will provide the details of Fareed's computer modeling and his conclusions. After reading them, it will be difficult to dispute his assessment that Oswald's stance was neither impossible nor unusual for Oswald. These and other photographs in Oswald's life, showing him assuming the identical stance he takes in the backyard photographs, reinforce the point of their authenticity. In conclusion, it is noteworthy that the ongoing nature of the investigation into the Kennedy assassination, which never ends, has its benefits in terms of the search for truth, as well as its costs. There have been no less than eight and possibly more public, private, and academic investigations of the assassination. Following the Warren Commission investigation, there was Life Magazine's consultation with John Connolly in 1966, which was really not an investigation, but a cursory plea that the government reopen the Warren Commission. Next came CBS's four-hour investigation in June 1967 that also pleaded for a more comprehensive reinvestigation of the assassination. In 1968, Attorney General Ramsey Clark reinvestigated controversies involving the autopsy photographs and the wounds inflicted on President Kennedy. But this investigation was restricted to those questions. From 1976 to 1979, the House Select Committee on Assassination reinvestigated the JFK case and sought to investigate the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as well. During the last month of the investigation, the committee was about to release a report agreeing with all of the findings of the Warren Commission when it came across an audio recording purported to be recorded sounds in Dealey Plaza at the time of the assassination, including four shots. These were supposed to have come from a police motorcycle recording device that was stuck on the on position as the motorcycle it was on rolled through Dealey Plaza close by the presidential vehicle. Four shots, if true, meant a conspiracy to the committee. So they released a report in 1979 declaring that Kennedy was probably killed as a result of a conspiracy based on the strength of this one piece of evidence alone, and that the bullet was probably fired from the grassy knoll, but missed the president and missed the other, and missed the other occupants of the vehicle as well. If true, all of the bullets that killed JFK and hit Connolly were fired by Oswald, but someone else tried to help. How does this evidence compare to our series of what-ifs? In fact, it is remarkably similar. In spite of the seemingly technological and scientific nature, a recording, all of the value of this evidence was stripped away in the next five years following an investigation of the audio tape by the prestigious National Academy of Science, NAS. 
the NAS investigation unanimously, unanimously concluded the following. The acoustic analyses do not demonstrate that there was a grassy knoll shot, and in particular, there is no acoustic basis for the claim of 95% probability of such a shot. The acoustic impulses attributed to gunshots were recorded about one minute after the president had been shot and the motorcade had been instructed to go to the hospital. Therefore, reliable acoustic data do not support a conclusion that there was a second gunman. The result was to eviscerate the value of this so-called evidence as evidence and to transform it into a what-if of no evidentiary value whatsoever. First, someone listening to the tape heard a great deal of noise, but nothing that sounded like a shot to the naked ear. Even before the National Academy of Sciences conducted its investigation in 1982, there was no way to tell precisely whose motorcycle carried the open mic, although the House Committee claimed to know. There was also no way to determine the direction of the supposed fourth shot which was again inaudible to all but the supposed experts. The committee merely asserted, based on the ear witnesses to the assassination, some of whom reported a shot from the grassy knoll, that it must have come from there. The National Academy of Sciences found that, based on background sounds such as a tolling bell that was identified as coming from the Dallas trademark miles from the site of the assassination, that the motorcycle with the mic was idling there more than a minute after the assassination, and that it could not possibly have recorded shots that had rang out miles away and in a different time frame altogether. Without the audio tape, the House Select Committee investigation had come to the same conclusions as the Warren Commission. Lee Harvey Oswald did it, and there was no conclusive evidence of a conspiracy that stood the test of investigative time. So these five investigations were the main investigations. But in the late 1980s and 1990s, PBS, the Public Broadcasting System, and the organization Failure Analysis Associates conducted an investigation of the shooting sequence, which confirmed the single-bullet theory once more after being endorsed by all the previous investigative efforts in the case. Also in the 1990s, the ARRB, the Assassination Records Review Board, which was charged with forcing federal agencies to release all JFK-related records by 2017, contributed to an investigation-like impact of reconfirming previous conclusions of no conspiracy, simply because none of its thousands upon thousands of documents released pointed in the direction of conspiracy. Critics carped that some documents were still unreleased after 2017, when all documents were supposed to be released. The conclusion that all documents ought to be released was a good one. I know of no historian who disagrees that all the records should be released. But historians know that the holdup is not because of evidence of conspiracy, since all of the members of the AARB, many of whom were or are historians, have examined minutely every single assassination record still being withheld. 
They also know why these scattered last records are being held up. Sheer bureaucratic inertia. If one bureaucrat thinks that the identity of an informant, now long dead in all probability, needs to be protected, or their methods protected, sealed it remains for another year. I know of no historian who expects anything from further releases. Most releases each year are releases of documents that have already been released, sometimes with fewer redactions, sometimes with more redactions. They show the absurdity of over-the-top government secrets concerns. So, where do historians stand on the question of conspiracy or no conspiracy? We will take up that question in our next podcast in our series, Puzzle Pieces. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode of AudiblySpeaking.com. New podcast episodes appear on AudiblySpeaking.com approximately once every two weeks. Please subscribe to Audibly Speaking on iTunes or whatever podcast aggregator you enjoy. Until next time, this is Rick Ryman. Happy listening.